Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Quantopian Show. In our inaugural season, we're conducting a retrospective on Quantopian. Quantopian was a crowdsourced quantitative hedge fund that launched in 2012 and shut down for good in November of 2020. I'm Foss, and I was one of the founders and the CEO of Quantopian. To me, the most important and innovative part of Quantopian was our community. Quant finance is a secretive field, and back in 2012, there just wasn't any form of community. We wanted our community to span novices and professionals. Building a community is like building a campfire. To get started, it takes a huge effort, but eventually it becomes self-sustaining. When we first launched our community, we wrote the initial posts, demonstrated how to share code and back tests, and we answered every question. As the community grew, certain members showed up with a natural motivation to do the same. Members who rallied around the platform and became well-known and highly respected by the rest of the community. One such member is Dan Whitnable, who combined his knowledge of Python, finance, and our platform with impeccably clear writing. Eventually, we asked Dan to join the Quantopian team, and I'm grateful he accepted. Dan has a unique perspective as a longtime Quantopian community member and a Quantopian teammate. After the last episode with Jean Berdash, Dan sent me a beautifully written and incisive retrospective. I loved his candor and point of view, and I think you will too. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Boss, yeah, thank you very much for this. And it's uh, great to reconnect and to uh, and to share some of uh, my feelings and, and, uh, and a very good introduction. Yeah, I think everyone's really, really excited to hear from you, Dan, since you're uh, such a well-known guy in the Quantopian and Quant, quant community <laughs> at large. Um, Still, still active in the quant community. You we're telling me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Since Quantopian, I left, uh, and I'm working at Alpaca, which is an online brokerage company, and uh, doing much the same thing I did at Quantopian, and that is uh, working with individuals with uh, writing uh, trading algorithms, and uh, it's something I'm still very passionate about. I think that makes you like the world's leading expert in assisting people in writing. It's <laughs> two, that's two really like significant uh, experiences. Well, um, you know, and it's not just assisting the people, I guess I've, I've started to gain an appreciation and understanding of the type of person that is attracted to this field. And that's been a little bit of an eye opener for me along the, along my journey too. Oh man, my interest is peaked. You got to tell me, like, who who are these people? We can probably get into that a little bit more as the as a uh, discussion goes on. But yeah, I I, I use the the term. Im, Im, we all remember back to our high school math days and Venn diagrams, and you know where you have these three circles, and one of them for traders in in our field is someone with a reasonable understanding of computer coding. Then you have another circle, which is someone that has the wherewithal, where, I mean, be that time, be that money, be that drive or whatever, and, and call that another circle. And then just surely for trading, you know, if someone is actually doing their own trading, they have to have enough funds to actually trade something. And, and you can kind of think that the people who have a lot of funds to trade are 
people that are over 60. <laughs> and unfortunately, that doesn't intersect well with that circle of people who have the technical programming ability. And so you kind of take these three circles and that overlap is, are the people that are really uh, engaged with algo trading. And, um, and it's a small subset. And right. I think we, we kind of found that out in Quantopian that at any given time, there wasn't more than two, three, four, five thousand active users, um, even though the total number of users who came to the platform were two, three, four, five hundred thousand. Right. Yeah, that, it's like one or two percent, right? Have all three. And yeah. uh, I always thought that the the capital, you know, having the money was the tightest filter. I think the, yeah. um, the you know, having the time and the interest and uh, even the coding skills, I think those are much bigger sets than, um, you know, than, than the third. Yeah. You know, something just lately that's improved that in the finance field uh, is uh, fractional shares. For sure. Yeah. Um, that's helped lower the bar for a lot of individuals. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's pretty amazing actually. And I think, you can see that uh, spreading out to other asset classes too, not just stocks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's exciting to think about fractionalizing everything and having greater access and what it might mean. I think customers and users love it because you can think in dollars, right? You don't have to worry about shares. It's like a really yeah. simple change, but I think it makes it much easier to think about a portfolio and allocations and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So part of all this is is to learn. And part of the learning in this retro is to gain perspective. And so I'd love to understand your perspective on Quantopian, you know, how you saw the company from the outside initially as a community member, what it meant for you, and um, kind of like, what was Quantopian for you? Yeah. So your question about how did I view Quantopian, I think really hits on big issue that I sort of look at companies as a lot like individuals and, and healthy individuals, I think, are pretty well aligned in how you see yourself with how others see you and then kind of how you see yourself in the future or what your goals are. If you can get those pretty well aligned, that's sort of a healthy individual. Companies are a lot like that, I, I think. And if you can get your employees, your customers, your stakeholders all aligned and looking at the company the same way, the, the better. And to your point or to your question, Foss, about how did I view it, I, was, I came in strictly as a pure narcissistic, I'm looking for my own, uh, I was looking for a backtesting platform. And, and I think a large chunk of the users of uh, the community was doing the same. And for backtesting, it really, it's more complex as we found out than yeah. a lot of people appreciate. But at a minimum, you need sort of the structure, but you need the data too. And that was a big chunk of, or I think is still a huge hurdle for individual traders is just getting access to the data. So I had been personally trading since, let's say, 2000, my first algo was in 
Visual Basic and Excel scraping from Yahoo. And, oh, no way. I love and, it. And coming up with a list of buy stocks. And that was back kind of before the internet. And I actually called my broker and said, hey, I want to buy this, sell this. So you had an it. algo that told you the buy, sell list and you would like literally. Yeah, then I would call it, it in, in the morning. Yeah. So oh, that's amazing. I just, I lost interest in that pretty quick because it was just <laughs> so time consuming. But anyway, uh, I was looking for alternatives and stumbled across Quantopian. And so that was my perspective. And then, of course, became active in the community and and uh, and worked from there. So my my view and how I used it was primarily as a back tester. And and I'll probably we can probably get into this more a little bit later, too. But that was one of the points of misalignment a little bit in that mm. the criteria for the, any of the contests were completely different than my criteria as an individual right. investment. And so then I had a decision to make that I said, where is the biggest bang for my buck in terms of time, investment and time? I could maybe, I could spend time on writing a contest algo and maybe get an allotment, <laughs> you know, but I kind yeah. of look at yeah. that as, you know, pie in the sky, or probably a much less risk from my standpoint, or a much, much better use of my time is to find an algo that works, that satisfies my investment goals. Through all my years there, I never entered the contest at all. So I think this is like a really deep observation on on the company this concept of alignment and I, I love what you wrote uh, about it in the in the note you sent me and I, I think it took it took me anyway like years to realize that the work that people were doing for their own account was not the same as the work that we needed to do the, for the fund which I feel like really naive saying that but it took a long time for that to be clear mm -hmm. I'd love to just dwell on your motivations for a bit. You know, the, the need that you have for the back tester is clear. It's very practical. Mm -hmm. um, but what about the community? Like, what was it about the community that kind of drew you in? Because you were a fairly prolific community member. And you just like naturally jumped into this role where you were just helping. It seemed like everybody. What motivated you to kind of work that hard for to help other people like that? I think it's kind of hardwired. I don't know. But I had for years been in management. Uh, that's kind of my background is software mm -hmm. engineering. And I was a manager of different engineering groups. And the thing that I always really liked about it, enjoyed, and what drove me is the idea of working together with the people on my teams. Um, yep. And then mentoring them, and I tell you, the biggest excitement, the two two things that I found most exciting, well, first off, I'll tell you, uh, in any room, except at Quantopian, I will say, but in any room, I generally feel I'm the smartest guy in the room. And starting off with that as a premise, going into a meeting with three other individuals and coming out of that meeting with a better idea than I ever could have come up with on my own, what I found so exciting mm -hmm. that I that collaboration really does work. 
the the next thing that I really drove drove me was also working with other individuals, mentoring them. I, I, mentoring is sounds kind of hierarchical, but um, the idea I, I really enjoyed seeing that aha moment in others hmm. to say, "Oh, I get it now," or "Oh, this works," and. Both of those things I got from Quantopian. So in a way, it, it kind of fed my being able to work with others and come up with something better than I could have on my own. But then also, as you started off, the whole algo community is pretty tight-lipped. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that doesn't happen very often. But really, it was more the second, being able to help individuals and for them to be able to say, oh, I see now. And that's a bit of a challenge because not everyone sees the same way. And I think it's something that I enjoy or feel I'm good at or whatever. And that is the ability to really understand what is the question someone is asking. Oh, um, I love that. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, go beyond the words. You know, oftentimes people say, I don't, uh, how does this work? And really what they're asking is, I'm doing this, why doesn't it work? Or something like that. I, yeah. I can't think of an example, but it's reading between the lines and saying, oh, step back. Here's, here's your stumbling block. Here's the mental block you need to get over. Here's the way you need to redo your concept of the problem. And then I think you can move forward. So it's being able to work with individuals like that. So so that was really it. I I, I just enjoyed doing that. And and it was in uh, Quantopian had a real nice venue. It was something I was very interested in. And in a very real sense, it was something completely different. At the time, I was full-time engineering, uh, not in finance at all. And so in some ways, it was a bit of a something else to do. So Dan, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, this like motivation to like help other people and get them to an epiphany about their problem, mm -hmm. you know, was what motivated you at work, but like, where did that come from? You know, is this, is this something that is like lifelong? Did you discover it when you started working or is this like a motivation um, that, you know, that, that, no, it, it wasn't lifelong for whatever reason you get tracked into a certain field. And I found myself in engineering and found myself building things. And mm -hmm. once you build so many things, you, like I said, start working with other people. And then you start realizing, or I started to realize that I could always build something, but how could I work with someone else to build it better? How could, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, teach a person how to fish thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I always found that, wow, you know, if, if I could get these three people to do what I'm doing, hey, we'll be much better off. So um, it really is was just a natural extension to a certain degree. I think that a lot of doers turn into teachers after a while. So you know, th this is how you ended up in the community, and and um, you know, I just remember you you were like Quantopian famous because uh, everyone on the team would uh, time to time talk about you know like this amazing post or this, you know, helpful thing you did for another, another community member. And we reached out to you and I, I'm just curious, like what motivated you to join the company? 
Yeah. Well, that was kind of a funny thing. So I think it was like 2016, maybe, is when I started using yep. the back tester. That was probably around I, after hearing the interview with Mahjan that you did previously. I guess I appreciated or didn't appreciate that was when you first kind of rolled out the back tester. So that was yep. when I started using it. That was when I, 2016, uh, 17, I became active in the, the community. And Jamie McCorriston reached out to me and, and asked if I could uh, speak at a Quantopian meetup in Chicago. And I think that was in like June of 2017. So I drove down to Chicago, met with Jamie, and there were probably a dozen other Quantopian users in the room. And I gave this talk. And afterwards, we were sitting around drinking some beers. And, and I mentioned to Jamie that, you know, we're, what, what do I do? And I, you know, was an engineer and, and I said, but I hope to retire someday and do full-time trading. And, uh, and Jamie said, well, give me a call when you, when you decide to retire. And uh, sure enough, a couple, three years later, I, one thing led to another and I was thinking about going full-time trading and moving away from engineering and uh, the stars aligned. I got a hold of Jamie and he said, well, rather than retire, how would you like to do something with Quantopian? And I, I couldn't believe that that would even be an opportunity. And my career moved from building automation systems to finance at that point. And, uh, and I never looked back and enjoy that I, I made the move. So I thank you, Jamie, if you're listening to this. Yeah, uh, I hope he is. You know, I think it's just like so interesting you know, to think about having your perspective as a community member and then kind of like going behind the curtain. I'm interested to hear like what sort of changed for you in that transition and maybe like what your hopes and dreams were for Quantopian the company and your role in it and then kind of like how it actually played out. Yeah, my hopes and dreams were to stay there longer. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. But <laughs> but I I liked the 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 role itself, um, and and I tell you you know, peering behind the curtain, oftentimes when you go into any situation, companies, and you look behind that curtain, it's kind of like that Wizard of Oz moment that you realize there's really there's not a lot there. It was completely the opposite with Quantopian. I tell you the one of the things that I enjoy was surprised. I guess I shouldn't have been, but surprised and enjoyed were the individuals working at Quantopia. Now, everyone was was serious and professional. And I tell you, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in any of my positions. And that that was a big surprise to me that the just the quality of of the staff there. And I can I could name them off, but I suppose if I started naming them, then I'd forget some and then yeah. I'd feel bad. But. Yeah, you have to do everyone, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like one of the things about Quantopian's internal culture was everyone was sort of a person of substance. You know, there there weren't, we didn't, there was no one who was sort of frivolous about right. what we were doing. Um, and I, I think I think that um, kind of attracts a certain kind of person. And it's the type of person I really myself enjoy working with. Mm -hmm. so I, I, I think... Uh, I love hearing you talk about it, but I, I obviously felt the same way. Like really respected all the people, but the attitude that people had toward their work, I found like really refreshing, you know, it's just mm -hmm. like deep, deep devotion to doing a high quality job. So 
I love this idea of alignment. I had, I thought of a couple of questions about things that weren't aligned, but um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about uh, finding alignment, uh, finding misalignment. And, yeah. you know, like one, one thing is just, is building a community at odds with building a quant hedge fund, like this whole premise here right. based on a conflict. Well, I'll, I'll start a little bit, if only because it's kind of fresh in my mind. I just, uh, before this, I uh, re-watched uh, your interview with, with John. And one of the things that he brought up after listening to that, that he, it was as he was talking about how long it took to get up to speed mm -hmm. and coming up with a minimal viable product, an MVP. And what he was referring to when he was talking about an MVP was the algo infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it's that struck me as sort of, oh, well, here's a problem right here. Here's a misalignment right here. If you think about what a product is, you know, in its very basic sense, and maybe this is where everyone in a company should be aligned is on a definition of product, is narrowly defining it as at the end of the day, what pays your salary? And everyone should say, well, that's the product. You know, you can be doing a lot of things, but what are you selling? And and it was interesting that John talked about an MVP. And, and of course, that was maybe in a little bit different context, and I understand, but was the infrastructure. Whereas I think what Quantopian could have improved is come up with, when you talk about an MVP, what is the minimum viable fund? The product yeah. was the fund. And, and I was a little bit on the outside. So maybe this was their boss and you can jump in and correct me. No, but, I, I think but, you're uh, like, you know, you're hitting, you're hitting the right chord here. You know, that I never saw someone hold up and say, here's an MVP fund. If we can do this, you know, then we can go on and, and we can be, you know, do bigger and better things. So that would be one of the things where I think that we were a little bit misaligned is what was the product that we had? And, and certainly that was a misalignment between the community members. A lot of the community weren't involved with the fund at all and weren't yeah. all moving in the same direction. I really like the way that you put it. It's different than the way that I've been thinking about this um, over the years. I think I remember a long time ago, I had this great conversation. Um, I don't know if it was great. It was an insightful <laughs> conversation. It was an insightful conversation with Rob Stavis, who was one of our board members. And, you know, he's got a background that, you know, deep finance and then venture. And so, you know, he's run businesses in finance. He's run, you know, startups. So he, he's got like a really interesting mix of perspectives, but really strong, like operator. He's really fun to talk to because he's his mind is like very quick, you know? So I was, whenever I talk to him, I sort of feel like I'm mentally running a sprint, <laughs> and, um, which is, is fun for a while, but we were talking and it was, it was sort of like in the middle of, of Quantopian's uh, run. And we were, we were just getting to the point where we were putting together a set of algos to run, run portfolios and kind of to your point, you know, just starting to look at what the fund would look like. And as I was talking to him, all of a sudden, I just got that like cold tremor down my spine because it was like year four. And it, all of a sudden, oh, I thought to myself, oh, my God, we're just 
for the first time doing, doing the thing that we're here to do. Yeah. I also, I think was realizing while talking to Rob and fielding all of his like pretty, pretty deep questions about how the fund would work and what a structure would be and properties and how to combine these things. And, you know, what are the trading costs going to look like and how are you going to, how are you going to neutralize risks? You know, he's, he's really deep in, in, in the area. So we had a lot of deep questions. The sort of recursive epiphany for me was that's going to take a long time for us to figure out. We're going to have to work really hard for a long time to, to figure out how to put all this together. Mm -hmm. This is like one of the biggest lessons for me from Quantopian is that you can have this like grand vision of what you want to be in the future. And one of the most difficult things is to figure out like, what is the first step in the right direction, mm -hmm. um, you know, to get there. And I don't, I think it's hard to pick that right out of the blue, right from go, but you need to be looking, right. You need to be trying to find that gradient that you're going to walk up mm -hmm. building a fully functional fund, which is what we did probably isn't the right first step. Yeah. And the other thing that. I phrased this at various times, different ways, but and I think we all kind of saw it, is I think there were too many, or at least too many too early constraints put on strategies or, or the fund. And I think that played out a couple different ways. One of the things is it just made it extremely hard yeah, <laughs> and you know, people got disillusioned. But uh, maybe I'll use an analogy here. I, I always, I'm great with analogies. But you know, if you think of the fund as maybe searching for new alpha, you know, that was yeah. probably ultimately. And think of an analogy as as say you you're some scientists that get together and you you want to go out and search for new animal species. You know, you want to okay. you know that they're out there. We just need to find them. And so how might you do that? You know, and so I think you would start off on a real small scale and you'd say, okay, how about if we get a couple of these scientists to go out into a forest for a week and see if they can find some new species? And if things went right, they would. You know, they, they'd say, yeah, we spent a week there and we found two new species. Great. Then they come back to the office and they say, how could we scale this up? Well, there's probably a reasonable idea that if we look in different forests, we would find different species. If we looked all around the world, but we just need a lot of people to do this to cover this much geography. So let's crowdsource this. That's kind of an analogy for maybe what yep. the Quantopian was doing. But yeah, I think I think it's a good analogy actually. <laughs> okay, but but so but I think this is what really happened. So that's what I think should have happened maybe. Here's mm. what I think really happened. Exact same thing. We got these scientists together and they said, but they added an extra constraint. They said, instead of searching for new animals, we want to search for new animals that look like unicorns. <laughs> so the same thing happened. They, they, these these, these uh, scientists went out in the forest for two weeks. After two weeks, they didn't find any new animals that looked like unicorns. But then they went back to the office and for some leap of faith, they said, but you know what? We can find unicorns if we just had more people and we crowdsourced it. Yeah. I, think I love that, it. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> that was the mistake, I think. Yeah. 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 And I think like compounding that mistake is like some of the scientists came back and were like, hey, we found the Loch Ness Monster. Is that something you might be interested in? Right. We're exactly. like, no, 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 no. We need unicorns, unicorns. 
Exactly. Yep. And so that's that's what I think starting off with fewer constraints could have helped with. Yeah. It is it could have it could have led down different paths. To a certain degree, you we ended up or you ended up that like that with the idea of combining alphas at the very end. You know. Right. But I think you know what's like. Sorry, I'm having like an epiphany right now. I feel like the the MVP is actually the individual signal. You know, we we kind of like we went through this whole arc, and at the end, we were like, "Oh, we should be combining signals." So, if the investment strategy is combine signals, then you know, maybe maybe the boil down is like, "Hey, let's start let's start with um, finding and evaluating just one signal. Like, can we find one signal that's that's interesting?" Yeah, I think if we did that, maybe it would be more like the original version of the analogy where where people are out uh, just looking for anything new mm -hmm. as opposed to the unicorn. I love the unicorn. <laughs> Interestingly, a long time ago, I read an article in National Geographic about, I think it's entomology, right? That's the study of bugs. Yeah. And um, there, there are many, many species, obviously. And the, you know, over time, the species that, you know, are sure discovered first are the ones that are larger and can move greater distances because they just have like a higher probability of people running into them. Okay. Uh, and yeah. then over time, like the discovery gets like to smaller and smaller and more, you know, less and less mobile species, which I think actually is a lot like alpha. You know, they talk about like the age of macro alpha when you could run, you know, mean reversion and and uh, be highly profitable, which is another, another interesting thing. Love your thoughts on this because, you know, you've been really active in two global communities, you know, global trading communities. And over the past couple of weeks of, you know, from waking up the newsletter and doing the interview with Jean, I've, I've gotten just a ton of email, which has been super fun to, to read. And one of the things that a lot of the, I would say professional set, so like professional quants that were kind of watching Quantopian, one of the, the things that they really were highlighting is this Oh gosh, how to describe the idea, this idea of like over constraining the search and mm -hmm. that, you know, the timing and the focus, you know, the timing being like in the late teens and the focus being the U S equities market mm -hmm. that both, you know, the, the timing and or the focus were wrong. Like if we were to try to crowdsource U S equity strategies in the late nineties, maybe that would have been super successful. Because you know it was easier to find and get started. And so one one thing I've been wondering about is maybe the MVP should have been outside the U.S. markets, like a you know a less you know like a younger younger marketplace with more opportunity. Mm -hmm. Possibly, yeah. The other way that where I thought you were going with this is kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of meta factors. <laughs> or I I tell you over the. 20 years that I've been trading, I always wanted to hold on to the belief that there was, that it was driven by some basic market psychology. And, you know, maybe it would be small alpha, but there's always some, something there that generally drives things. And, you know, to an extent, it's say momentum, you know, yeah. if people see a stock go up, then it's going to keep going up or down. But yet, I have been proven wrong time and time and time again, that you can come up with a strategy like that and it works for a month, six months, a year, and then it doesn't, but then it starts working again. Yeah. And I, I wondered about that concept of having the community 
look at why doesn't this work anymore? Or, you know, is there a relationship for, you know, between these two factors, why, why they're cyclical or something like that? That would be the type of, you know, going back to what you were saying about the Loch Ness Monster, <laughs> it would be if you set the community out to say, look for any kind of anomalies, look for any kind of factors, mm. maybe some of those things would have come up that could have been useful rather than just like a basic raw factor as, as one example. Yeah, actually, I think there's like sort of two financial concepts that you're talking about that I think one one is, um, I think, factor timing, right? So they're, you know, just like established factors and they have, you know, a relationship amongst them and and cycles. And if you could time factors, right, you, you could have a very high capacity, very profitable strategy. And I think factor timing is really similar to market timing, right? And so kind of the accepted wisdom is it's, extremely difficult to right. consistently time factors. And I think the turning points are um, pretty sparse over time. So, you know, not, not tons to work with, but, you know, it, it's tantalizing to think of doing it because it would just be like such a phenomenally uh, profitable uh, strategy. So another question I wanted to kind of start you down on was um, just turning points for Quantopian. What did you see as like sort of the major turning points up and down? as you were, uh, you know, maybe in the community, maybe when you were on the team? Yeah, let's see. I, I certainly, the big shakeup for a lot of people, me a little bit. Um, well, actually, it's sort of sort of funny, too. My, my timing throughout my life has not been great on things, looking back. I, and one of them was an algo that I had all ready to turn on to go live the week before Quantopian shut down live trading. <laughs> so I, that would oh, be- Oh man, I feel, like, I feel like I just have to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, maybe you saved me from catastrophic losses. That would be one turning point, I think, in the community. And this ties back to maybe how the community viewed or used Quantopian versus internally where they Quantopian was headed. I think that turning off live trading was probably certainly at the time was definitely the thing to do because as as Jean kind of alluded to earlier, it was a big distraction. And maybe, you know, if we were the size of Google, all those distractions could lead to new products, but it was just a distraction. So that would be one turning point that I think turned off a lot of community members or caused a lot of, huh, you know, rethinking of why am I here? Right. Yeah, and, definitely. I mean, that's definitely the case. I, I, the amount of uh, angry email that I received <laughs> uh, was pretty amazing. I, and it, it is definitely one of the decisions I look back on and I'm just like, is, was that the right thing to do? The thing that always uh, makes me unsure if we did the right thing is, Right thing for the business, I mean, by the way, because I, I definitely feel like pretty bad about turning it off on on uh, users like your story, like your story mm -hmm. illustrates. So that doesn't exactly feel like the right thing. But for the business, trying to figure out what to do, the thing that I always think about is that it was small, but uh, the group of people using Quantopian in that way to trade their own portfolio was just growing by itself. I mean, it was like 
totally neglected. We didn't, we didn't mention it like anywhere on our website, our public website. Mm-hmm. And yet people were still finding it and still using it. Yeah. And finding growth of any kind is really, really difficult. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I just at the time didn't appreciate how precious that kind of growth was, you know, right. that, that, you know, if you find a small group of people who are really passionate about something, that's a really special thing to find and probably slowing down and thinking, thinking through what it would mean to shut it down, thinking through what the potential was yeah. for that group. Yeah, um, for us, it's interesting that you mentioned about growth. Alpaca is a small I'll say startup, but they're, they're, they've been in business long enough that the internally what we're trying to change the thinking. And I think, I think words really convey a lot of power that Alpaca isn't a startup company. It's a growth company. And, and I think at some point startups need to transition to growth and no longer be startups. And I kind of wonder if after four years, uh, midway through Quantopian's life cycle, maybe the transition should have been more thinking of, we're, we need to be a growth company. I mean, I totally agree with that, but I think it's not based on time. It's based on key milestones, right? The, yeah. the, first, one, the first one, I think, being alignment on a vision. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think when I was reading your note, it just really landed. I was like, yeah, this is this, you know, I, I always like to look back on things and think about, was there something within my power to do to change the outcome mm-hmm. for the better? I definitely, I like to dwell on things. So I definitely, you know, think a lot about things that <laughs> didn't go the way I wanted. That's why. not healthy, Foss. <laughs> you know, everyone keeps telling me that, but I don't know that I totally agree that it's unhealthy. Like it, it doesn't, I, 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 I like thinking, you know, like I think, I like thinking about things, I like thinking deeply about things. And, you know, I, I love to learn and I, I, I find it actually, I, literally everyone, I, I, I don't know if I was like over the top in my first, my first email about uh, how I felt about everything, but I don't feel like I'm hurting myself when I'm thinking about what happened. You know, I don't, I don't feel bad about it. I'm now anyway, I mean, I think initially it was like devastating, but, but now when I'm looking back, like, I just enjoy it. It's like intellectually, like fascinating to me, uh, what we were doing and how it went. Yeah, so I, I feel like um, that alignment question, you know, that's that's really like the first thing for a company. Like you have to have a clear vision of where you're going. I was just going to say, you know, another area that I don't think we were very aligned on is even that concept of community. I think we threw around the the, the word crowdsourcing and without really defining what that was and maybe two extremes and there's probably three or four in between but two extremes would be like crowd tasking you know that's where you just create these small little micro tasks and you get a bunch of people to do them and then you aggregate them in the background the the other extreme would be something like linux you know open source crowd sourced coding and both of those, I think you would call crowdsourcing, but they're really two different, completely different things. And I think that we, we could have done a better job of saying, what is this community? What are we trying to really get from the community right. asking them to do? Yeah. And like where on that spectrum is sort of yeah. like the ideal. 
You know, another conflict, I'd love your opinion. So community is all about people helping each other, in my opinion, right? That's that's mm -hmm. like what really, to me, defines community and having some things in common, right? So with technology, it's often like a community around a platform. You have this, you know, operating environment or platform in common. So you can empathize with someone else's problem. You can understand it. You can reproduce it and you can help them. So technology communities are, are really strong, but it's all about the people who are participating, like kind of giving and getting and crowdsourcing is very different. You know, I, I think it's more about third-party observation of people and kind of harvesting, you know, and it's not crowdsourcing as an incentive structure, you know, doesn't by itself motivate a community of people or, or, you know, even if they're not a community, just like a set of people. So you always have to add an incentive, right? So we saw that we had to add, you know, the allocations and, and the promise of payment, or we had to, you know, create the contest. So, it's, you know, the thing that I think is really kind of interesting is community really is like a campfire. Like once it gets going, it sustains itself. Like if you, if you stop feeding and pushing and, and incentivizing, it just stops. Mm-hmm. I think that comes back to maybe what you were saying about the spectrum from crowd tasking to open sourcing, you know, yeah. crowd sourcing like that, that the crowd tasking, yeah, the minute that you don't have any, any feedback or any, any incentive that just goes away. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's people that spend hours, more than hours oh, on lifetimes. Open source, lifetimes. Yeah. For nothing. And, um, you know, what, what is that all about? So, well, I think I, it's the same as I, you answering questions on the community, right? It's just, it's intrinsic. It's like an intrinsic motivation people have. Yeah. Where, uh, on that spectrum, like, is there any part of finance that should be in the open source end of the spectrum? And this is probably, this is just my idealistic me coming through, but I do not believe finances is, or yeah, I'll just say finance in general, but trading and trading in specific, I'll say trading is not a zero sum game. And yet everyone believes it is. In fact, it's so funny. I just, the other day or week, I, I, I got this uh, comment question, whatever about this guy who bought, like, who was trying to buy and sell Tesla you know, as an example. Yeah. And he he was all upset because every time that he put in an order for Tesla, the price went up. <laughs> yeah. And and he was he was convinced there was something rigged in the system. And in the, the nicest way possible, I tried to tell him, your order for two shares of Tesla has no bearing at all on the five million shares that are traded every day. Right. <laughs> And I, somehow you have to get around that zero sum game, and and I think all and I think all that that is is people just start to need to start to see there's more benefit from working together than there is in not working together. I mean, and I I think I would think that would be very easy, but you need to prime the pump to get it going. Why I say it should be easy is. I know for a fact that most people out there that are trading are not doing very well. Mm. And it should be pretty easy 
to say, hey, you know, if we work together a little bit, you could do a little bit better than that because right now what you're doing just isn't working. And I would think that you could nudge people above that, that bar. But yeah, it, it's pervasive in finance that people don't want to show their cards. Oh, it's like deeply, deeply rooted. Where, yeah. where, do, you, where do you think that comes from? Like, why are people so protective? I, I think it's simply because they look at it as a game, as a zero-sum card game that I can't show my cards. I feel like it is true, right, for alphas. You know, if you share an alpha, right, it's going to degrade. So why? It, 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 you know, there are parts of the system you think don't function that way? Right. Oh, well, you know, and I think you're hit on or you're going in an interesting direction, boss. Part of the answer might be to separate the things that potentially are do have an impact from those that don't. Right. I think that's like a really interesting set of questions. Like, where would you draw that line? Like what the alpha itself, like the, the signal, right? You can imagine, okay, fine. There's very few of those, first of all, they're hard to find. And uh, they do disappear when people, when they're, when they're more broadly discovered. What would you put on the, hey, it's better if we share this end of the spectrum, like the open source? I, I think, you know, if you think of it, I'll just say, don't think of it. I, <laughs> I witness 80% of the time that people put into an, an algorithm or a strategy is just getting it to work. I mean, I'm, and I'm not talking about generating alpha i'm just saying not <laughs> not crashing yeah there's huge chunks of just the infrastructure and it's both on the actual execution but the back testing the data all of that stuff and and that was actually where i thought that quantopian was going and or, or saw a real niche that it could serve and that is almost creating a common vocabulary, a common set of tools, a common approach to be used for trading equities in, in specific. And that could all be done open sourced. And, you know, in a lot of ways it was, you know, with Zipline and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which has lived on and been integrated and implemented elsewhere, like other yeah. other platforms support it. That's a That's a kind of oddly gratifying outcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It makes me think like, yeah, we, we did some good work there on the design. You know, it's a design that people appreciate and continue to use. I I was, you know, getting curious as you were talking about like, you know, the, where the time goes for people when they're working on things and years have gone by now since Quantopian shut down. And I'm wondering like, what do you see out there that is like the need uh, for people that are trying to uh, algo trade on their own? I'll start with on a real high level, just a framework. And what I mean by that is a develop, and I'll start off with a development framework. I don't think I, I since leaving Quantopia, well, certainly while I was there, but, and then since leaving, I've been a preacher of the whole concept of thinking in terms of factors, thinking in terms of backtesting those factors and then putting those factors into implementation and the little pitfalls in the, in the way 
And certainly one of them in the implementation is that fidelity of moving over from your backtesting environment to the yeah. execution environment. So there's this whole framework of how one proceeds with coming up with a trading strategy. That's a real need because what I see is people go out and look on some YouTube video. This is how you trade. You look for this moving average and this cross and you do this. And the next day they're, they, they're investing $10,000 in it. I think there needs to be a, like I said, an approach or vocabulary for actually how you trade. But more specifically, a backtest, it would be ideal to have an online backtest engine. Short of that, just nicely accessible data at a reasonable cost. I don't know how, how people could be expected to afford data for trading. You know, as you know, it's hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month. Yeah. And looking at Quantopian's original tagline, you know, democratizing finance. I mean, I, I'm working with a lot of uh, individuals who, who live in uh, all, all parts of the world that for them, they saved up their money and deposited $50 into a trading account. And that's what they have to trade with. Right. And that's the majority of the world. That's the an opportunity that that needs to be filled. So some kind of framework for backtesting, some kind of accessible data that's reasonably priced, I think is a big hurdle for a lot of individuals. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question on how to bring that price down. Yeah. Trading accessibility, you mentioned at the beginning, like fractional shares really, mm -hmm. really changed everything, right? Anybody yep. can buy a fraction of any equity now. So that's a massive improvement in access. Well, not only in, in access, but it goes back to that whole concept in my mind of a, a framework for trading. And that is, I, I preach to everyone too, don't trust the markets. Don't trust your YouTube video on strategy. Trust the math. And certainly one piece of math that bears itself out is if you diversify, it lowers your volatility. And fractional shares allow you diversification. So, you mm. know, it's, it's not just yeah. access, but it's actual being a smarter trader, I think. Yep. I mean, that, I love what you said. Really well put that fractionals increase diversification. I also think that it is kind of amazing that, you know, for single digit dollars, people can just try buying and selling a stock. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I think that that's kind of an amazing, amazing change in the world. So I'm wondering, you know, now again, like, I, I feel like you have this like pretty amazing vantage point because you're, you're talking to like a really large share of the world's independent algo traders. Mm -hmm. What are you excited about? Do you see like a technology that's coming along that you're super excited about or like a trend among, among, among independent traders or an asset class? Like, is there, is there something that you're kind of looking forward to seeing unfold? You know how earlier I said I was an optimist and generally look at the glass yeah. half full? No, that there's no things that I'm looking forward to. I tend to see the bad things that I see happening. Crypto, in my mind, has done more harm <laughs> for investors than I think 
and it'll take a while to undo that. Can you explain what you mean? In that, it's it's turned everyone into tra- into speculators. Okay. And throw out that whole idea of diversification and this and that and the other thing. It's just like I'm going to buy Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to go up forever. And you know, so I, I see that. I see some of and to a certain degree, options and futures trading is becoming a little bit more accessible to individuals. Yeah. But that is very complex. And I shudder when I hear some of these people what what they're doing because they just don't understand it. And maybe that would be the other thing. In fact, I I have a little side project. I don't know if I'll ever get it off the ground, but it's just explaining to people how trading works you know it's it you know in some ways the of the world have done a disservice because that button that you click on to order 10 shares of apple looks exactly like that button you click on on amazon to order a pair of sneakers and people think that they're the same thing and they don't appreciate that first of all it's highly regulated and you know that's the first thing that someone's account gets locked out because they did this or did that. And they go, what? I can't just buy and sell anytime I want anything I want. It's like, nope, there's regulations and rules and people don't appreciate that. The other thing that I think that people don't appreciate as traders, as individual traders too, is how the markets really work. They have a kind of a warped idea or, or a simplistic idea, I don't say warp, and it's understandable, it's that the market is one big exchange and everything happens instantaneously. And that isn't the case. As more and more people get involved with the markets, they just don't understand what they're doing. Um, and then maybe even as simple as, you know, there's probably 10 or 11,000 tradable equities right now in US markets people should only be trading probably two or 3,000 of those because a big chunk of them are these master limited partnerships or rights mm-hmm. or, or 20 other different kinds of instruments that if you don't know what you're buying and selling, you shouldn't be buying and selling it. But they just look at it as a symbol and they said, oh, this symbol went up and I'm going to buy some too. And... Um, they just don't understand. So I think there's a real lack of knowledge that uh, should be filled. So what's the side project? Does it have like any definite form yet? It sounds like the goal is to help people. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, I, I want to write a, or have a website or a book on, on just that. It's kind of like, okay, here's how the markets work. Your trade isn't executed on it. You know, the first thing that happens is they say, I want to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, that's everyone thinks that their their orders get executed on exchange. Yeah. So I start off and say, nope, probably half the orders aren't executed on an exchange. And this is how they get executed. Yeah. And, and stuff. And and this is kind of go through that execution process, the types of orders, why you should use them. I see so many people misusing the different order types, like stop orders and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then going into data, you know, another thing I oh, you could I could write a whole book on data. It's you know, you know, FOSS, it's it's big data. 
you know, and big yeah. data isn't like little data, that it's messy. It's not what you think it is. There's timing. Um, yes. I get this all the time that people get bent out of shape because this price was off by a penny. And I'm going, well, okay, yeah, it should be fixed and it would be nice and everything if, if everything were great. But if that impacts your trading strategy, oh right, yeah, you you have other issues, you know, right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, it's understand where data comes from, you know, and the, the, just a whole plethora of things, stock symbols, you know, people come with, I want to buy this, but how come, the, you know, it's like, oh yeah, there's really four major symbologies that the different right. Yeah. And here's the different kind of, this is, you know, why does this one have a dot in it and this one have a dash and you know, all of that. So yeah, it's, um, it's an exciting field, but yeah, so it's kind of takes the form of a website or a book, but uh, nothing's public yet. Oh, very cool. I think the antidote to what you're saying of, of people getting access to these like sophisticated instruments and then not fully understanding what's going on, right, is education. And one thing that makes me optimistic is people, a lot of people are very hungry to learn. Like they, they want to know how things work and just getting access to the right kind of education, the right kind of information, the right kind of instruction is the antidote to that. And what makes me hopeful is people are very motivated. People really, you know, want to learn and understand how things work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what's tough is it's one of the places where like the internet kind of falls down sometimes where it's so valuable to get the attention of these people, you know, people who want to trade, they're really sought after. And so there's just like a lot of noise to cut through and it's hard to find like a source that's really, you know, has, has sort of like a pure focus of education. I'll ask you this. What's your feeling on something like the AI, like the chat GPTs, are they fixing or hindering that? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like it has the potential to do both. Yeah. So I found it like really extraordinary working with ChatGPT in two use cases, just things that I've been playing with. One is when I want to understand something like a concept or like a historical period or a, a method or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's now I have like a, a sort of like a reflex building up where if I Google something and the stuff that I'm getting isn't really giving me a cohesive picture, it's, you know, sort of stuff that's trying to just grab my attention. That's when I turn to ChatGPT and I'll, you know, ask. And that I found to be like really powerful. I'm reading a book that's historical fiction. It's about the the wars between English Protestants and English Catholics in the you know 1600s, which I never studied, so I didn't know anything about. So I ended up asking ChatGPT about all this. Hmm. It makes it incredibly accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, I love to talk to people and learn from people, and so it feels like that because it's very conversational. By definition, I'm not an expert in that area, so like, I don't know. Is it hallucinating or is it telling me the truth? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's like the problem, you know, to be solved. But I think it's like really, really, really powerful in that direction. And I, th this experience of like iterating and tailoring kind of like your own interface to the world. Mm -hmm. you know, Google was amazing because it was like, oh, it's everything. I remember, I remember searching the internet for the first time with uh, other search engines and how noisy they were. And then late 90s, like, using Google and just being like, oh my gosh, this is the way it's supposed to be. It just like really cuts through the noise. The With ChatGPT, I feel like the it's so malleable and responsive, right? It's like this incredible way to, for me anyway, to learn things. I'm, I'm sure there's like lots of people that feel the same and differently. 
The other one is coding. Gary, I don't know how that works. Well, I do know how some of it works because I've, I've actually seen my code show up on chat GP GPT. Oh, no way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> it is hey, cool. you're gonna, are you going to go on strike? Like the Hollywood? Yeah, Earth? yeah, there you yeah, go. You want some royalties from your from your code? I certainly don't know if it really was, but it's funny that they use the same. Sure, it looks familiar. Yeah. yeah. And the same order of the instructions. But but uh, yeah, that is scary how, how coding can really help. And that, I mean, but also it's scary that half of the things that I end up doing are people, I help people with getting their, they go, well, ChatGP said this should work and it doesn't work. Fix it. <laughs> and, and going, well, Why don't you uh, ask ChatGPT to fix it? Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I think that's like the thing right now with coding. When I was, so with ChatGPT, the things that I found it amazing at are like, like I wanted to automate some stuff with Google Docs. And so there's an API, but it's like massive. And I've never used it before. And to be totally candid, I'm like not super interested in learning the Google Docs API. I just want to uh -huh. like, do You my just want to get one thing done. I want to get one thing done. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, ChatGPT's read it all. <laughs> you can just ask. Yeah. So, but what I found is to really be productive, you have to almost be asking it to write sort of like at the function level. I haven't had any success anyway, like prompting it to create something, you know, bigger than that. Add something that's like more structured. Uh, rewrite zipline for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, please refactor zipline, or can you take zipline and re-implement it in Go, please? You know, yeah. things like that would be pretty amazing. But you know, for more what I would describe as like disposable software, like scripts, or like I just need this like one function, or you know, I don't know this API, write it for me, and and then I'll kind of tailor it. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing. I had coded professionally full time for like fifteen years, and then had like a five-year hiatus. And, and so it's like hard to go back because I gotta get my toolkit set up and I don't, you know, what language am I going to use? And where do I, you know, like the whole tool, tool chain and learning the APIs and stuff like that. So one, one thing that's been super cool is just, you know, the setup with ChatGPT and Notable and just being able to start and do things right away mm -hmm. has been pretty pretty amazing. Before I lose my train of thought, I, I wanted yeah, to, yeah, please. to bring something up. Uh, you had started talking about, or I think I asked you, is is it is ChatGP good or bad? Yeah. And this is the optimist in me coming through. So one of the things, and you hit on it, that working with these chatbots requires you to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. And even to the extent, and I do the same thing, and it sounds like you do, you need to be almost iterative. It's like yeah. you ask it yeah. a question and then you look at it and go, well, how about this? And and I and I don't know how it does it, but ChatGP is very good at, oh yeah, you you do need to do this or here, more information. But anyway, I have hope that the next generation of next generation moving up, working with these chatbots starts to learn how to ask questions mm. rather than right now where everyone is programmed to looking for answers. And if what we could do is develop more of a mindset for looking for the right questions, I think that would go a huge step towards a lot of the problems we have now with the disinformation, for example. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. That mm -hmm. is a super interesting point. 
So it's almost uh, like the hallucination problem is like, like I remember when Spellcheck came out. For those listening, that's a feature that actually didn't exist. <laughs> that was a great thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the red squiggly line. And uh, I remember in the beginning, I was like, "Wow, I'm I am tremendously bad at spelling. I had no idea." And I definitely got better at spelling because it's like a game, you know, to try to avoid the red squiggly line. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this tool, this new tool that we have hallucinates. And so when you're talking to it, I think you have to be on guard, right? And you have to be able to ask the right questions and follow up questions and Mm -hmm. try to figure out if you can trust the answer. That's a a lovely thought, Dan. I hope you're right. And I think about like the way that my kids use it, you know, and they're younger and and it's... um, it's sort of the first really big technology that's come along in their lifetime where they're aware, you know, like mm-hmm. I remember like iPads and how amazing that was iPhones and everything like that. Just like the incredible increase in, in capabilities for, for mobile. And to my kids, that's just like totally normal. Like they didn't, they don't know the world without that. Yeah. So it's really interesting seeing <laughs> them, you know, experience like a transition like this for the first yeah. time. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, I'm going to watch them now, see what kind of questions they're asking. I, I think that's brilliant. They're going to yeah. turn you into a chatbot. They expect answers like that from you when they, when you, when they ask questions. Well, I don't know what it is, but there is something about the way that ChatGPT writes that it's like, I was talking to a friend of mine about writing a, a business proposal. He was, he was working on a deal and I was trying to help him think through like the structure so we had a couple of phone calls and we were kind of honing in on what the key points were. And I was saying, you know, what I usually do is like write out the deal points. And so he was like, all right, great, I'll do that. So what obviously happened is he then went to ChatGPT and said like, hey, write some deal points for me. And he sent me this document. And the way that it reads to me, it seems like the more words that have been written about a particular topic, like the more words about that topic will be included in what's generated. Mm-hmm. So if you think of like legal documents, you know, 90% of it is not about the business terms, right? And it's about stuff that's like kind of, I think of as being sort of like market rate, you know, terms that are, might change over time, but like for any given moment, they're sort of like the accepted market rate for those terms. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing was about those because that's what's common to all these types of agreements. And like the thing you actually need to think about are the specifics of your business. So I, I feel like, that's where I, I feel like it falls down. Like if you try to trust it to generate something in an area where you're really naive, you get this sort of like really, you know, this like gross average that you just is not, not, not what you need. Right. It's not interesting. So I don't know. I think, I think that'll be like another area to watch and see if it improves. Mm-hmm. But I love, I love this concept of we're going to, we're all going to get better at asking questions. That would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Dan, this was awesome. I think we're reaching our time. So I just wanted to say, Thank you so much. Well, yeah. And uh, Foss, uh, right back at you. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. And, and thank you for my time at Quantopian and being part of that. Absolutely. And, and uh, when the time is right, when you want to unveil your book or website or lecture series <laughs> or whatever it is that you're, you're cooking up, I know a big community oh. of people that would love to hear it. So. <laughs>